He sees you when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad and good. So be good, for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You'd better not cry. You'd better not pout. I'm telling you why. Because you'll go straight to hell. <clears throat> what a crazy song. We sing this every Christmas to try to convince our kids that Santa Claus has got a list and he's checking it twice. And, you know, if you're not, you're not a good child, you may not get anything. Well, that never works. Everybody gets stuff. Even the bad kids get stuff. Ask me how I know. <clears throat> but you know, we take that silliness also into our relationship with God because he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. He knows the real truth, not just the stuff that makes it to the list. No, the good news, the good news, as the gospel is called, is that in spite of what God sees in our lives, as we learned this morning in the earlier service, Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, not that which was worthy, because we are all fallen short of the glory of God. The good news, the gospel, is that the, the righteousness that you and I could never accomplish Jesus accomplished by living a life that fulfilled the law of the Old Testament. The law of God was waiting for centuries for somebody to fulfill it. Jesus did that. He lived it to the T, fulfilling God's purpose for the law. And then, for all of us who had broken the law, he died on the cross to pay for our sins as a penalty, the death that we deserved. And he rose again on the third day to show that God accepted that payment on our behalf. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And even though there are many of us who have with great certainty believed that message, when we open the book of Hebrews, we come to a couple of passages in this, this book that's sort of like you know, driving along the pavement at the beach on a bicycle, and then all of a sudden you get in the sand. You ever tried to ride a bike in the sand? That's like reading the book of Hebrews. I mean, you're skating along, and then all of a sudden, whoa, you want to just fall over. A couple of passages in Hebrews, there are places in this great letter that we just sort of look at and go, and then just kind of want to sweep it under the rug, because it's like, well, a Christian can't lose their salvation, can they? And if they can, what in the world do these passages mean? So rather than just, you know, pick a nice cushy passage in Hebrews that we could, and it's full of them, I thought, let's take this bull by the horns and look at a couple of these passages that give us problems. And um, hopefully we'll walk out of here a little more confident <laughs> than, uh, than walking in with the book of Hebrews. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. And let's answer the question, are you sure you're secure? As we continue in our series where we take a message from each of the 66 books of the Bible, the book of Hebrews is a wonderful, 
wonderful experience. In many ways, the book of Hebrews is like reading Leviticus in the Old Testament, except it's not so boring. Leviticus is a big challenge in your annual Bible reading program because you get to all these laws and you think, what in the world is that for? But you back up and look at the big context. The purpose of Leviticus was really twofold for the Old Testament Hebrew. It was for gaining and then sustaining fellowship with God. It was written to a nation that was already redeemed. It wasn't given to them to redeem them, but it was given to them to help them regain and then to sustain that fellowship with God through the whole sacrificial system. And so when you come to the book of Hebrews, it's very similar. The book of Leviticus in the Old Testament talked about sacrifices and priests. Hebrews in the New Testament does the same thing, but it focuses on the final sacrifice and the final priest, Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful study in contrast. So Hebrews chapter 6, right in verse 1, Let's begin. The author, and that's what we'll call him or her, uh, because we don't know who it was, except we, don't know, we know that it wasn't Paul, almost certainly because of the language and the... Um, anyway, there's a big debate over that that's irrelevant. It's inspired. So we'll call him the author. Writes in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What the author means here is when he says leaving the elementary teachings, he doesn't mean we leave him behind. He means now that's the, the rung of the ladder. Let's take the next rung up. Let's build on this foundation. Let's don't just stay on this foundation. Not just going over and over about these basics, you know, like repentance from dead works and faith, you know, washings, baptisms, all that stuff that's, you know, we teach in Sunday school. The author says, let's press on beyond those things. Let's grow. And when he says, um, this we shall do, there in verse 3, He means this is we shall grow. We shall become more mature if God permits. And then notice in verse 1, it starts with the word therefore. Therefore always makes you want to look back and see what it's there for. If you look back at the end of chapter 5, the verses just prior to chapter 6, you note that, we won't read all of it, but note that it says, um, verse 12 It says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You come to need milk and not solid food. Verse 14, solid food is for the mature who because of practice, very important, because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Chapter 6, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings, let's press on. So the author is basically saying, You know, by now, you should know the ABCs of the faith. And you should be teaching others the ABCs of the faith, but you need somebody to teach you these basics again and again and again. You need to press on and grow beyond that. And the way you do it, he told us at the end of chapter 5, is because of practice. By applying these truths is how you grow 
to become mature in the faith. And this is the challenge. And this is our challenge. We've got a study Bible for every flavor of vanilla in our lives, don't we? You can go up to the Christian bookstore and find a study Bible on any subject you want. There's probably a study Bible on, you know, eating vegan. In fact, I think there is a study Bible on eating vegan. But uh, our problem is not information. We've got so much information. We are overwhelmed with great study tools, great teachers of the scriptures that can come along and give us, almost spoon feed us, the truths of God. Our problem is not information. Like these readers, our problem is application. That because of practice, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil and to grow beyond the basics. Their need is not for information, but for application. So, knowing what you should do, he's about to say, but not doing it produces regression, or you begin to go backward. Look at verse 4. He writes, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they actually crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Yikes, what in the world is this saying? Is this teaching that a Christian can lose their salvation? Back, uh, one of my favorite folk groups of the 1960s was Peter, Paul, and Mary. Love old Peter, Paul, and Mary stuff. One of them is uh, their hit, Puff the Magic Dragon. Remember Puff the Magic Dragon? Puff the Magic Dragon, live by the sea. Um, you know, remember what the sort of the the urban legend was as to what that song was really about? You know, marijuana, yeah. This, that you're, you know, the, the magic dragon is this bong or something that you puff on. And after, I think it was at their 30-year reunion, uh, Peter Yarrow, who actually wrote the song, said, I just want to make clear, this was never about drugs. This was about a little boy and his dragon and the... Uh, the sorrows of leaving boyhood behind. And he says, I know that because I wrote it. Well, whether or not you believe that, <laughs> the truth is that meaning lies with the author, not with the reader. If I write you a letter and uh, say, you know, let's go have lunch at Jason's Deli after class, and you say, you, say, you know, I don't really like Jason's Deli. Let's go to Olive Garden. We'll meet Wayne there. Wayne's not going to be at Olive Garden. He's going to be at Jason's Deli where he said he was. When we read the scriptures, we don't read the scriptures and say, you know what, this is what I want it to mean. We read the scriptures and interpret the Bible with the Bible. Scripture interprets scripture. God interprets his word. And thankfully, this challenging passage, as well as so many others in the scriptures, we're not left to just sort of figure, well, do we go to Jason's or Olive Garden? We, we, we do some spade work in the scriptures, and we figure out what it means. So what does it mean? Even a casual reading of the book of Acts, if you were to read in the book of Acts, you would see that one of the challenges of the early church, which, who were primarily Jews who had become Christians, 
is that they had incredible pressure to go back into Judaism. And remember, Judaism in the Old Testament, a lot of times, especially today, we'll think about Judaism as a separate thing from Christianity. And, in t- and today, it is, because there's been this huge separation. But if you think about the flow of the Bible, Judaism, or, or basically Old Testament faith, would be a better way to refer to it, flows right into Christianity. Christianity is the outflowing of true biblical Judaism. And it's, it's only the splinter that sort of went off and said, now the law is the means by which you gain righteousness of God. And the whole New Testament begins to show, no, that's not how it was. In fact, the book of Romans shows that's not how it ever was. Righteousness has always been by grace through faith in God, even before there was the law. Just check out Romans 4, and you see that very clear. But the early church was struggling with this because there was pressure by the Jews or the Judaizers of that day to lure the Jewish Christians back into obeying the law, and that's the means by which they would become righteous. You see this over and over in the book of Acts. It was probably the Apostle Paul's number one problem as he went around to all these places. He would get stoned by the Jews, not by Gentiles. It's the Jews that that didn't like Paul because Paul was saying, look, believe in Jesus Christ. You're not righteous by obeying the law. The law simply pointed you to your need for God. That was the purpose of it. Well, these Christians who were reading the book of Hebrews, and by the way, notice the title of the book, is written to Hebrews. These were Jewish Christians who were struggling with the lure of going back into the old system. And so this is why the book of Hebrews, if you read the whole book and you look at the big, big section of it, it's showing the superiority of Jesus Christ. In the very first chapter, you see this very clearly, that Jesus is superior to a number of Old Testament systems. He's superior to Moses, we're told. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Aaron and to the, the priesthood of Aaron. There's a lot of text devoted to that. And the new covenant of, that Jesus ushered in replaced the old covenant, or the new, new Testament, Old Testament, the new covenant replaced the old covenant because it's superior. And so this much debated passage here in Hebrews chapter 6 has been interpreted one of several ways. First of all, some believe that it teaches that Christians can actually lose their salvation. But if that's what it's teaching, notice that it also teaches that it's impossible to be saved again. It says if you can lose your salvation, then, it, then it's implying, verse 6, it says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So if that's the case, it's not, it, would, it would be not only teaching the insecurity of the believer, it would be teaching the security of the damned, which is not make much sense. Second, others say that it refers to those who only profess to be believers. You know, they, they said that they were Christians, but it turns out they really weren't. But look at the language here. Those who have tasted, they have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers to come. This is not language of people that just sort of dip their toe in the water. This is language of Christians. In fact, if you look at other places in the book of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament, this is language of believers. So if we're talking about real believers, what in the world does this mean? Well, notice verse 4 
begins with the word for, F-O-R, or at least in the New American Standard it does, and it's there in the Greek as well. For, in other words, he is explaining. He is explaining why you don't want to stay immature as a Christian, why you want to grow beyond the basics. For, in the case of those who have been saved and then have fallen away. Ah, so now we understand in the context what it means to fall away. Fall away doesn't mean lose your salvation. It means the temptation to go back to the old system, to fall away from the true faith of walking with Jesus Christ, to now to go back and saying, you know, my righteousness is a result of being in the law and not simply having faith in Jesus. So what is this impossible to renew them to repentance mean then? It's not referring to an impossibility to renew them to conversion. That's not in the context. It's an impossibility to renew them to commitment. It's a speaking of fellowship, not of salvation. If these Hebrew believers should willfully return to Judaism, they would be linking themselves, to quote the author, um, to those who openly crucify or who crucify themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. They would be linking themselves with the faith of those who crucified Christ, not the ones who believe in Christ. So the words here, fall away, or literally, the original says to fall beside, you just kind of fall off to the side, speak of a reversal of commitment. He's trying to communicate, why would you go back to Judaism when Jesus is far superior, superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to Aaron, superior to the law. Jesus is far better. It's sort of like, why would you go back to a horse and buggy when Christ just gave you the keys to a Lexus? No one's going to ride a horse and buggy if you've got a key to a luxury car. Same idea. You're not going to go back to that which is outdated. It served its purpose. It was good. It was holy. But God's done with that. The fulfillment of all this is in Christ. Notice also verse 7 begins with the word for. Now that he said what he said, now he's going to give an illustration, because illustrations help. Verse 7, he says, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But... If it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being burned or close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So what's this talking about? Well, it's not talking about a Christian being burned. This is an illustration. Notice again the word for. He is about to illustrate what he means about a person who falls away. A person who falls away is like, and then he gives this example. And he gives two examples. The first one is a good one. He says, ground that drinks rain brings forth vegetation, and it is, key word, useful. So when the rain falls on the ground and it sprouts and it bears fruit, it's useful. That's God's intention. Verse 8, but if all this happens, if rain falls on the ground, and instead of it bringing forth fruit, it brings forth thorns and thistles, it's worthless. There's the comparison. Useful worthless, not saved and unsaved, useful, worthless. In other words, back up again, look at the big context. End of chapter 5, going into chapter 6, 
If you're just stuck on the basics of the Christian life, and you're not moving on by applying these things to your life, then you have gotten a lot of rain on the ground, to use the illustration, but there's no fruit, and it is useless. I believe that James, the apostle, or the, the brother of Jesus in the book of James, says the exact same thing when he says, faith without works is dead. He doesn't mean that it's non-existent. He means it is useless. And we'll probably look at that some next week as we look at the book of James. But the idea here is, you want an illustration of, of faithfulness and fruitfulness? Just look at the ground. It rains on it, and it brings forth fruit. That's what God wants in your life as well. So the cursing here and the burning doesn't mean hell. I mean, this burning, what do you do with you know, thorns and thistles? They're worthless. You burn them. It doesn't mean the people are burned. It's showing how worthless the thorns and thistles are. It's all part of the metaphor. And when our lives are not faithful and we don't bear fruit, the author is saying, you know, we're like a bunch of weeds that get burned. That's how useful we are in the hand of God. But notice the next verse. It starts with a contrast. Verse 9 starts with the word but. Okay, great contrast. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, Notice the application. Show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, again, the goal here is application. And the author goes on to say, you know what, even though I'm speaking this way about all this you know, worthless land and everything, I believe better things about you. I believe that the salvation that you have, we're going to see fruit from it. And God is not unjust to forget your work. Verse 10 is a wonderful verse when you feel like, you know, rats, this is hard. This Christian life thing is hard. I mean, I want to go back. There are times when you think, you know, my pre-Jesus life had some pretty good stuff in it. I mean, I kind of miss some of that stuff. It's like when the... Um, the Hebrews were coming out of Egypt, and all they had to eat was manna every day. It's like, thanks, God, but where's the salt? Where's, we miss the leeks and the onions we had in Egypt. You know, the leeks and the onions. Yeah, we were slaves and all, but hey, where's the, you know, pass the garlic. We miss that, don't we, sometimes? Let's just be honest. Sin is fun, but... There are costs to it, isn't it? Not the least of which is the fallout that comes from being out of fellowship with God, but also it leads to a life of unfulfillment, uh, ultimately. But the author is saying here, look, God's not unjust to forget you. Verse 10, all the hard work that you've done, it's going to be worth it. In fact, he challenges them and he challenges us be diligent. Verse 11, show the same diligence. Keep going. Why? Verse 12, so you're not going to be sluggish. So you're not going to give up. So you're not going to go back to the old life in the old way. You're going to press on because you believe 
that there's better hope coming. Verse 12, you're not going to be sluggish, but you're going to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's going to be worth it. Hang on to it. Keep eating that manna. Even though it doesn't taste as great as the leeks of Egypt, eat the manna and trust that it's going to be worth it. Well, all of this leads us to principle number one. Very simply said, actually it's not simple at all, it's pretty wordy, so I'll say it a couple, a couple times. Here it is, determine to grow by applying God's word or face potential perpetual immaturity. Determine to grow by applying God's word or face potential perpetual immaturity. Sounds a little academic, sorry, but if you think through the words, I think it, it's still helpful. We need to determine to grow by applying God's word. Don't just stick with the basics. Grow by application of it. Or, the author warns us, this is a warning, you could face potentially a perpetual immaturity in your life. You could stay immature, and you will not realize the life that God wants you to have. You know, it's likely that you know something right now that you should be doing. That God's word has been tapping your shoulder for a long time. Almost every time you open the scriptures, there it is again. It's like, whoa, how does that keep finding me? Everywhere I turn, there it is. This particular issue, this particular leek or onion, if you want to think of it that way. This part of the old life that I want to go back to. It's funny how we can love God, but we can keep something back. I saw a cartoon of a guy being baptized, and uh, it shows the cartoon of the pastor holding him under the water, and the guy being baptized has his arm up and his wallet's in his hand. It's like, you can have it all, God, but not this. This isn't getting baptized. I remember uh, hearing, I don't know if it's an urban legend or not, but when Sam Houston trusted Christ and the pastor baptized him, Houston came out of the water and the pastor said, Sam, all your sins are washed away. And Houston said, God help the fish. (laughs) Well, at least Sam went under and he took it all under with him. But it's tempting, isn't it, to hold something above the water in our lives. Even after we've made a full commitment, loving the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is a daily decision. And the author of the Hebrews warns us, don't give up in that fight. At least he admits it's there. It's not some stained glass, you know, oh, the Christian life is this rosy walk down the primrose path all the way to the rapture. It's not. There is a hard tug pulling us back into the old life. For them, it was Judaism. For the rest of us, it's whatever our our old life was. And it is a strong pull. And it is a compelling pull in this world. The world and Satan knows exactly what to do to wiggle its way into our heart and to lure us back to the old way. The author of the the Hebrews is saying, don't do it. Don't fall for it. Keep pressing forward because it's going to be worth it. Now, this warning of perpetual immaturity, only God knows when that's going to happen, but we're told that it possibly could. Verse 13, look at this wonderful outcome if you hang on. 
We're told, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring to desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. I love that phrase. We have this hope as an anchor of the soul. I mean, sometimes you're just clinging to Scripture day after day, realizing, God, I am trusting you. I've got all my eggs in this basket, and I am trusting that you are not going to let me down. God is not going to let us down. All right, turn to chapter 10, and let's grab another bull by the horns. Chapter 10. And we'll look down at verse 26. When I was a kid one Christmas, I think I was about 12 years old, spent the night in uh, Terrell, Texas. Terrell, Texas, where, they, where my grandmother lived and my grandparents lived. And my grandmother's specialty was making apricot fried pies. Now, she made others. She made other fried pies, but nothing was like her apricot fried pies. I mean, these things were fabulous. And they were just big enough. I mean, you could get two bites out of it, but the best thing was just to take the whole thing and just kind of shove it in. Oh, so good. And I probably had half a dozen of these things. Well, I was 12, 13 years old. I'd never had heartburn before. I'd never experienced it. I didn't know what it was. And that night, about 2 a.m., the Grim Reaper came calling. I woke up going, what is this pain? I just couldn't sleep and... I know this is really naive, but I thought it was hunger pangs. <laughs> so guess what I did? <laughs> I went downstairs and had about three more fried pies. And of course, it just got worse and worse, and I was literally feeding my problem. But here's the irony. Here's the terrible irony. I was seeking to satisfy my hunger, or I was seeking to, to get rid of my pain, by eating the very thing that was causing it. To get rid of my pain by eating the very thing that was causing it. Many people, even believers, are doing the same thing. We're desperately trying to satisfy the pain in our lives, thinking that if we were Christians, we wouldn't be feeling what we're feeling. And therefore, there's got to be a solution. Sometimes we'll look outside of Christ for that solution. And, and the world's full of fried pies, isn't it? It's full of tasty treats that will simply deepen that, hung, that pain, that pang in your life that only God can ultimately satisfy. Well, look down at Hebrews 10, verse 26, and let's look at this warning. The author writes, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Yikes! Can I lose my salvation? If not, what in the world 
is this talking about? It's amazing how even some of the most conservative scholars abandon good interpretation when they come to these verses and say that this is not talking about Christians. Because if it's talking about Christians, what in the world could it mean? Well, again, notice verse 26 begins with the word for. He is explaining what he just said. So back up to verse 19, and let's just water ski over a couple of things. Verse 19 begins, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence. Okay, so context is Christians. Then verse uh, 21, since we have a great high priest, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart, full assurance, our bodies being washed. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together. Then verse 26, for if we go on sinning, See the connection? We're clearly talking about Christians here. In fact, the, the fact that he says for at the beginning of verse 26 links those two together. He is explaining if we, Christians, go on sinning willfully, so what in the world does he mean? Well, remember again what this, verse, what this book is about. It's written to, to Hebrews, to Christians, who have the Jews who have become Christians, to Jewish Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, who are being lured back into the old way. When he says, you know, not forsaking our own assembling together, verse 25, we usually, you know, throw that around to say, hey, you need to come to class, or you need to come to church. And that's a good application of it. But the original context of, us, of forsaking our own assembling together means not gathering with Christians, but instead you're gathering with the old Jews and you're not going to be involved with the new covenant. And so the sinning willfully here is not just some willy-nilly sin, but it's that particular sin that's spoken of. If we go on sinning, and the context is going back to the old way of Judaism. So when it says that there's no sacrifice for sins left, what does that mean? Well, when we sin as Christians, what do we do to regain that fellowship with God? We confess. Our sacrifice, Jesus died on the cross. We're told that if we simply confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. We confess in order to get back in right with God. But in the Old Testament economy, if you were out of fellowship with God, what did you have to do? A sacrifice, right? That, this is what he means when he says, if you're going to go back to the old way and you want to be in fellowship with God, no sacrifice for sin is left. God doesn't operate that way anymore. He operates through Jesus, the final sacrifice. There is no sacrifice remaining, verse 26, but rather a terrifying expectation of judgment. Now, there can be all kinds of judgment. Don't immediately jump to the conclusion that this judgment means hell. Um, there can be a judgment for Christians. There are a number of judgments throughout the scriptures. And so what is this talking about, the judgment and then this quote, the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries? What's that talking about? Well, this business of fire requires a little explanation. Keep your hand here in Hebrews and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4.
We read there in Hebrews that God is a jealous God. Vengeance is mine. The Lord will judge his people. It's terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. And then I think at the end of uh, chapter 12, it talks about God being a God of, who was a consuming fire. Yeah, Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. So we're in Deuteronomy 4. Look down at verse 22, Deuteronomy 4, 22. Deuteronomy 4, 22, Moses is speaking and he says, For I will die in this land, I shall not cross the Jordan. But you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So what does it mean? Here in the context of Moses being disciplined, and Moses couldn't go into the land, we're told God is a consuming fire, God is a, is a jealous God. Remember throughout the scriptures, you can go back to Hebrews now. Remember throughout the scriptures when it talks about the anger of God burning? It just means that he's really mad. Sometimes we'll use that same phrase ourselves. We'll say, you know, um, uh, you know he was fuming. Or we'll say, she is hotter than a hornet. You know, we're just talking about somebody being really mad. Or they're red hot angry. It's the same idea. It's a metaphor showing the, the passion of this. And for our God to be, for we're told that our God is the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. The word here for fury, we get, uh, is, is the original word zealous. We get our word zealous. We get our word zeal. We get our word jealous from it. All of those are actually a great translation. And it has the idea that God is jealous. He is zealous for our faithfulness. And he gets angry when we, don't, when we aren't faithful. And for these Christians to go back into the old system where there isn't a sacrifice that keeps them in fellowship, there is a quotation here of uh, uh, the author quotes the Old Testament to say, God is a jealous God, and he doesn't want that to happen to you. He doesn't want you to go back into the old system. In fact, Hebrews 10 here could actually be paraphrasing Isaiah, the context of Isaiah, which speaks of God's people who have been shown grace, but ignored it and pressed on and to do evil. So the judgment that's anticipated here in Hebrews 10 is not the fires of hell. It's for those believers who chose to go back into Judaism, back into a system that ultimately God would destroy when he destroyed the temple. Uh, in AD 70, which, which would have occurred shortly after this book's written. Keep reading. Verse 28, Hebrews 10. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? In other words, he's saying, under the old system, if you disobeyed the law, if you set aside the law of Moses, you could be stoned. His point is, how much more severe punishment, how much more of a violent death do you deserve 
if you set aside Jesus to go back to the old system. And again, nowhere does this say that you're going to go to hell. It, the context, especially when we're talking about God being a zealous God, setting aside the law of Moses, Moses not getting to go into the land, that our God is a jealous God, all of this is simply talking about potentially physical death for a believer. That kind of judgment is potential. A believer in the church who willfully sins um, can go undergo a process of church discipline and then ultimately to be treated as an un unbeliever. Look at verse 30. He writes, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I can remember the fear I had of my stepdad's belt. And I can still hear it leaving the belt loops slap, 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 as it came out. Of course, this didn't happen, but maybe once or twice, you know, as I was growing up. But boy, I can remember it. Do you remember those sounds? You know, that's a terrifying sound. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God, to have an expectation of discipline. We are so accustomed to the grace of God in our lives to think of our Heavenly Father in any way ever disciplining us or, or even taking our life if we're not faithful to Him. So that seems so out of character. And yet, when our parents disciplined us well, and even with the physical discipline that came along with that, it was a very healthy thing because it taught us something. It taught us. And if nothing else, it was an example to my brother not to act like me. So as much as God's word tells us that we can come to him and stay with him because of his love, we should also understand the consequences of willfully and habitually walking away. So here is a second principle from our text, simply this. Turn from any willful sin against God or face potential severe discipline. These passages in Hebrews are meant to warn us, to encourage us to be faithful, but also through the means of warning us. Turn from any willful sin against God or face potential severe discipline. You know, when we're hiking on a mountainside and we come to the sign that says, don't go here, you know, 5,000 foot drop, that's not there to curb your freedom. That's not there to hem you in and not let you be who you want to be. It's there to keep you from falling off the mountain and killing yourself. These warning passages in the scriptures are the same way. God doesn't say, I have provided you manna. You eat manna. Don't eat the leeks and onions of Egypt. Because if you do, there are consequences. There are consequences. So just as the author did in chapter 6, his custom after the warning was also to bring encouragement. Look at verse 39. He says, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, we won't look at chapter 11, but notice chapter 11 comes next, and that great hall of faith. Those who have faith to the per persevering of the soul or of the life. And then you've got all these examples in chapter 11 of people who said no to everything of the world in order to say yes to God. Example after example of people who lived by faith. And this is the kind of faith that we're to have. This is the kind of faith that we're to have. 
In fact, the ultimate example, if you look at chapter 12, look at chapter 12, the very first verse, he goes through all these examples in chapter 11, and then verse 12 gives us the ultimate example. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, i.e. chapter 11, surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And now look at Jesus. There's how Jesus did it. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How did Jesus do it? The same way that those in chapter 11 did it. For the joy before them. It was the future that was causing them to to hang on, to be faithful. I guess it's time to quit because my voice is done. (coughs) Excuse me. But the point that the author is making here is you're not alone in your struggle. Everybody in Hebrews chapter 11 dealing with what you're dealing with. And many of them, all imperfect, clung to their faith and persevered because they believed that there's something greater beyond. The ultimate example was Jesus. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus endure the cross? He's the example for us, for the joy set before him. How are you going to do it this afternoon? As soon as we say amen and walk out of here. Or better yet, Tuesday. Ah, Bless you. Thank you. How are we going to do it on Tuesday? We've got to remember the joy set before us. You know, because it's not just joy that's set before us. We've got Egyptian leeks and onions. And I'm sorry to keep referring to Egypt in a negative manner, but you understand me, brother. (laughs) We've, We've got those leeks and onions always before us, but we've also got the joy set before us. It's just the joy is a little farther back. We're waiting for that joy. That joy's coming. That's the joy that we want to cling to and wait for by being faithful and walking with Jesus Christ. So, one final application. Let the joy that God has set before you strengthen you to endure the struggle. Let the joy that God has set before you strengthen you to endure the struggle. You see, Hebrews is not written to show us how we can lose our salvation. It's written to people who have a secure salvation, urging them to stick with it, to not go back to the old way, because there's nothing there for you. It's God's done with that. Stay faithful. Stay where God has you because it's going to be worth it. Well, let's bow together and pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful, rich book of Hebrews, the surface of which we've only scratched this morning. But thank you also for a deeper look at these passages that are often so troubling that when we look in context, we see that it's not teaching what we fear. It's teaching something far better, that in the midst of our secure salvation, that our great high priest who has died for us and who is ever, ever able to keep us saved warns us of the dangers of walking off the path and that we can be out of fellowship with you and ultimately we can even have our life taken as a discipline. Help us stay faithful, Lord, 
as we uh, hear the siren's song of the world. May we stay faithful to you, knowing that the joy, the hope that we have before us will be worth it. And we pray in the name of Jesus, the one who did this for us. Amen.